Hello and welcome to the Scottish Music Centre's Amplified podcast. I'm Laura and each episode I'll be chatting to a Scottish-based musician and finding out about some of the music that matters most to them. This week is the turn of fiddle player and composer Alistair Savage. Hi Alistair, how are you doing? Hey, I'm okay, Laura. It's been a very, very wet day. It has. And uh, my wife's out walking today with her sister. Um, so very much I've got the, the best deal really sitting yeah. chatting about music yeah drinking coffee <laughs> but no I'm doing alright you okay? yeah I'm well thank you uh, how, how are you coping with lockdown situation? Um, I think I'm I'm probably like everybody else in as much as I'm I'm slightly sort of speechless about it you know you know that thing where you just struggle to come up with words actually describe it because it, it seems such a weird mixture of some positive things at certain times, um, and at other times it's just all about sort of worrying and, and disconcerting. I mean, from my own point of view, um, I mean, I feel very fortunate, really, because with my job in the BBC Orchestra, I do an 80% contract with the BBC Orchestra. So I've continued to be paid, which is a massive, massive blessing, actually, at this time, when so many musicians are struggling. And But, for example, my wife is, is furloughed at the moment, um, and although she has been getting, um, you know, 80% of her salary from the government, she really doesn't know if next month she's going to be like, working again, if she's going to be made redundant. Uh, my brother has actually been made redundant um, from his job during this time. So I kind of feel, you know, it's, you kind of feel fortunate, mm-hmm. but still, you know, it's, it's, it's just very difficult, all of these things. And I think for musicians, um, I mean, for me at the moment, the, the biggest thing this you know the summertime is the time of my folk gigs when I tend to do most things in the fringe. So that's all can be wiped out and it's it's kind of like it's just just a huge amount of disappointment. But at the same time, you know, it's actually been a time when I've probably seen family more actually. You know, in the orchestra we very often work at weekends, you know, so so very often our weekends can be written off in terms of actually spending time with family and friends. So mm-hmm. from that point of view just much more chance, you know, to, to spend time with people. So that's been that's been positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it, I think everybody's kind of same. It's 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 weird, isn't it? It's positive and negative all all coming together. Yeah, definitely. You've kind of touched on it there, but how would you describe what it is that you do in music? Um, I'm one of these people that's probably quite difficult to define, and one of the reasons for that is because, at least myself, I. I I quite like staying away from from categories or categorising other musicians. You know, I've always had this sort of thing where I think of musicians um, and people generally as being very much sort of individuals. Well, I'm not. I'm not. Society does that at large. Actually, it tends to categorise people, put people into boxes, and, and you know, link people all together. And I think I've always thought of musicians as being a bit like society in general. But people are individuals, and I think that. that putting them in categories is not necessarily good. If I had to categorise myself, I'd probably say somewhere in the sort of folk, classical um, spectrum, as I'll talk about with some of the pieces that are important to me. That'll probably come across, because as a fiddle player, I've really, throughout the course of my life, been very much involved in folk music and classical music. Yeah, and you've got, you play with the SSO, as you were saying, and you've yeah. got your own folk gigs that you organise? Yeah, um, with, the, with the folk stuff I've kind of branched out a bit and as much as the last few years I've, I've tried to sort of um, widen the net of, of people that I'm kind of working with and collaborating with. Um, for quite a few years I was kind of predominantly working with um, my trio 
Ewan Drysdale with guitar and piano, and Ian Crawford and double bass. I'm still doing a lot of work with them, but kind of just try to, to sort of branch out, uh, work with a few other people. Alice Allen, fantastic young cellist, been doing quite a lot of concerts with her. Tom Rathbone, another brilliant cello player from the BBC SSO, been doing some work with him. The trio with Ewan and Ian, we've been actually, I'm kind of trying to restart a recording project that we, we kind of started before all this lockdown. But it's, it's kind of trio plus quite a few other um, guest uh, musicians. Mm. So it is kind of a, a, a bigger collaboration, and really, mm. and it's, it's quite a, it's quite a difficult, it was a difficult balance of that before all this lockdown happened to try and choreograph it all, but because um, you know, places have not really opened again for recording and all that sort of stuff, what I have started doing again, I mean, tomorrow I'm going through to do some editing from recording that we did in October. So at least I can now get into the studio with, we're working with a great engineer called Colin Stephen. So Colin's um, been entrusted with, with, with guiding us through this, this bigger um, project. So I've kind of been just trying to sort of widen the net for various different reasons, you know, just to, to and just for your own kind of inspiration and, and, you know, work ethic, just working with other, other people and learning from other people. Um, yeah. I can yeah. tell from what you're saying that collaborations sounds like it's it's been always very important to you and um, I'm wondering if because you're you know you say you don't really uh, fit into any boxes or specific categories I feel like if that kind of has helped you to make a lot of connections through the music world throughout your career. Yeah I mean it's a, it's a strange thing because you get into quite sort of controversial territory to talk about all that because I think that everybody's going to, to, to sort of follow their own path so for me, my, my sort of true path, the path that I've, I've always felt right in following it is to incorporate a lot of different types of music. That's really what I've done from, from, from day one, has been, you know, really into classical music and really into traditional music. So it's, it's always felt me being true to myself to, to carry on that path and do lots of different types of music. The one thing I, I think, and this is open to debate, and people have different ideas about that, but I actually think that, you know, in terms of, of getting gigs and actually working as a musician, versatility can actually hold you back quite a bit as well because people, you know, other traditional musicians um, that I was at college with, for example, who maybe studied classical music but then left it behind and focused purely on traditional music, then have a, given a lot more opportunities in that area because, and similarly with, you know, in classical music, I think, um, you know, my um, colleagues in the, in the orchestra, for example, the ones that have been successful um, in the orchestral world are very often the ones who are really dedicated and focused to orchestral playing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's been the right path for me and I wouldn't change it for the world. I'm not, I'm not certain in a, in a career aspect it's been particularly good for me, actually. It's been great for me personally and in terms of, of, of the wide range of music I've wanted to do. But I'm not sure that, um, that spreading thing, you know, spreading the net that wide has necessarily okay. um, been a good thing in terms of the career itself. But that's open to debate. I mean, people have different ideas um, about that. Yeah. Do you think that, is that something that drives you then to make your own path? I, think, I, I yeah, I'm a big believer in, in like I said, the individuality of, of musicians. Like I think you, you've got to be very open to sort of learning from from people. 
but while you're learning, I think you've got to sort of find your own way with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For me, I mean, I'm, this has been a terrible analogy, but I, I've always thought about my musical life being a little bit like, um, it's a bit like my CD collection actually reflects my musical life. It's like a massive different range of, of um, different types of genre and, and, and CDs. And at certain points in your life, you might sort of pick out a CD that you listen to constantly. Mm-hmm. But all the other CDs still remain on the shelf. They all, they all kind of continue. Yeah. And when I, when I look back, there's been periods where, you know, at certain points, I've been sort of very single-mindedly into sort of folk music, you know, wanted. That's been the, the, the thing I wanted to, to follow. At other times, for example, when I first joined the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, that's 23 years ago. You're sort of riding in such a, a crest of a wave of, of the kind of um, privilege of, of, of getting a job with that ensemble. Mm-hmm. I was very, very focused on, on classical music and, and playing string quartets and all that sort of stuff at that time. So all those things sort of continued together, but at various points, certain things become more important. You know, sort of you're, you're more drawn to certain aspects of, of, of music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh-huh. I think that's it's a good analogy and it's uh, very appropriate for what we're going to speak about in terms yeah, yeah. of how music fits into your life. Just before we start to talk about uh, the things that you've chosen, how did you get started in music? My, my uh, starting point itself is very, I think, eclectic to the best word for it because my father is an accordion player. My, my father still, uh, my father actually celebrates his 80th birthday next uh-huh. year. So there's a little plug for, for, for dad. <laughs> so he, his obsession really was, was Scottish country dance music okay. uh, Jimmy Shand. Mm-hmm. And, and so really from the, before I could walk, I remember the radio being on and uh, the real blend playing through the, the radio. It was all Scottish country dance music. But for whatever reason, uh, this is quite bizarre, for whatever reason, the music that I first myself got interested in was classical guitar music. Oh. Now that's quite a, a shift. And I took up the guitar when I was six years old. So we had this thing in the house of one room, my dad playing all Jimmy Shand music, and in another room, I was sitting playing in Villa Lobos and, and uh, <laughs> Spanish guitar stuff. I know it's nuts. So the first recording, actually, um, I was wanting to draw people's attention to was to have a listen to John Williams playing Villa Lobos in particular. John Williams, that is the classical guitar player. There are two John Williams. John Williams, the classical guitar player, playing Villa Lobos, and in particular his. Um, prelude number three, which is an A minor. I think there's a really good recording out there from the 1970s, and it's probably the one because I was born in 1973, so it's probably the one that I listened to um, to, to start with. And uh, the, the Villa Lobos uh, uh, prelude number three, um, just to blow my own trumpet for a wee minute, when I got to 14 or 15 years old, I think it was, and I won the guitar prize at the Glasgow Music Festival. Mm-hmm. And it was Villa Lobos prelude number three um, that I played on the on the guitar. Um, but it's a beautiful piece. So Villa Lobos, um, quite bizarrely, I bet you weren't going to guess that, as the first composer <laughs> no. I was going to draw uh, people's attention to. At the same time, as I, around the same I took up the fiddle when I was eight years old. Um, and I didn't want to play the fiddle. I got a chance to play at school, um, at Winton Primary School in Avrosel. And... All I wanted to do was play uh, football for Kilmarnock. And I still dream of playing football for Kilmarnock, <laughs> but at 47, my chance may have gone. 
you never know. No, no, the, the chance may have gone. But I, I just wanted to play football for Kamarnock, so I didn't want to play the fiddle. But my dad suggested I, 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 I take up the fiddle when I had the chance. And here I, I just totally fell in love with it. I thought it was fantastic. And what I really enjoyed actually was um, playing in the Strasbourg Nook Society um, in the, down in Ayrshire. I joined, there was a Strasbourg New Society in Cowan, and the Esher Junior Fiddle Orchestra was on the go. So I joined those two groups and absolutely loved it. Two other recordings I was wanting to draw people's attention to that were hugely influential to me and probably, again, sum up the kind of sporadic nature of the music I was into. But the, the, the two uh, recordings I would say that got me most into the, the fiddle as an instrument, um, one was um, Ian Powery playing a tune called Margaret Ann Robertson that my dad was very into. Margaret Ann Robertson's a tune written by um, Frank Jameson, great Shetland fiddle writer. And Ian Powery was the fiddle player in Jimmy Shannon's band, and Ian Powery had his own band. I remember my dad uh, bringing me through to listen to Ian Powery playing on the radio in the Robbie Shepherd programme, playing Margaret Ann Robertson. And that had a huge impact on me. Um, so I encourage people to listen to that beautiful tune, and he's a fantastic fiddle player. At the same time, I took myself into John Menzies in Salkirks, just down the road from where we lived in Ardrossan. I wandered down the road to the John Menzies in Salkirks, and I bought a tape of Yehudi Menyon playing the Beethoven violin concerto. Um, and I had a wee look online, and there's a few good recordings of Menyon playing the Beethoven concerto. But I think I'm right saying the tape I had that I bought in Menzies that day was of him playing with the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra. And I remember going home and listening to it and just totally knocked out about it. Listening to it and just thought, this is, this is incredible. Mm -hmm. So there was no there was no categorization going on in my, oh. my head. You know, I was Ian Powery and I was listening to Yudi Menu and both were equally important and valuable. Yeah. But I would, I would point to those three from my childhood, Vila Lobos, Ian Powery, playing Margaret and Robertson. And um, you had him in playing the bit mm -hmm. of violin concerto. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you, it, you must have been quite young then when you were listening to that music, and you were playing guitar and fiddle mm -hmm. by then. Yeah. Um, so there must have come a point because I know that you're a professional fiddle player and a violinist with the SSO. So there must have come a point where you had to choose. I'm assuming between carrying on a yeah. career with the guitar or with the violin. Yeah, it, it really it happened really. Later on in my, my teens, I would say when I went to music college, I was 17, I, I went to Douglas Academy Music School from the age of 14 through to when I was 17. I left school after the fifth year at school. I had a fantastic guitar teacher at Douglas Academy called Philip Thorne. Philip is just the most fantastic musician, the most fantastic encourager of, of young players. And I, I would still hold him up in my top, you know, four or five influences in my life as a musician in terms of that really important stage when you're needing encouragement and needing. And, and Philip actually really encouraged me um, to do first study guitar, not in, a, not in a, a forceful way or at the detriment of a violin playing, but he said, you know, if you want to, it's up to you, but if you want to do first study guitar, you could do this. The only thing is, and he acknowledged it himself, that really by the time you go to music college, when you look at the competitiveness of the music profession, you've really got to be, you know, extremely dedicated and proficient on one instrument. There was no, if I had any aspirations of, you know, going into a professional symphony orchestra, at some stage, it wouldn't have been good to have been sort of 80% good at mm -hmm. guitar and 80% good at fiddle. It kind of needed to be 
hundred percent on on one of them. I I felt mm -hmm. in the classical music world to really to to really make a go of it. So by the time I was in um, college, really had decided I, I went with first study um, fiddle at that point, and had a great fiddle teacher called one uh, Jacobs who who was just incredibly committed, just incredibly committed and disciplined and, and inspiring. So really 17, 17 years old, I would have said about that age, okay. I had to make a, a choice on it. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the, the fiddle was, it just appealed at that point in so many different ways. I think one of the big things looking back in it was the social aspect of the violin as an instrument. Yeah. Because orchestral playing, whether it's in a Strasbourg Room Society or a symphony orchestra, it brings into contact with so many different people. The guitar, the classical guitar, was a very solitary mm -hmm. experience. Um, and I think at that age, you, you sort of craved, or I craved, I loved the, the, the interaction. I was starting to get that bug for collaboration, you know, and, and interaction with people. And the, the violin was just a much, um, see, the more obvious route for me. And, and really at that point, um, to be honest about it, the, the, the guitar fell by the wayside. So it's a bit of a shame, but the, um, by the time I was in second or third year at college, in fact, really by third year, I, I wasn't practicing the guitar very much at all. Um, and I'd, I'd pretty much um, given up playing it in, in public, really, by the time I was in fourth year at college. Mm -hmm. Which is a sign, I think, of the amount of work you need to put in to get that good at one yeah, isn't you, it? You just don't have the time to practice. I think, I think, yeah, I think it's very much genre based as well. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about different types of music being to the forefront at certain times. Mm -hmm. Because I think at the time when I was at the academy, there was no traditional music course at the academy. Everybody studied classically. And I think nowadays, you know, if you're interested in going into traditional music full time, that actually, to take a few steps back, it would have been beneficial for me to have carried on both instruments mm -hmm. together, in a sense. I think it would have, you know, for, if you were looking to join a, a band or you were looking to make yourself, you know, really useful um, as, a, as, a, as a session player. And there's lots of good examples in the folk music world of, of, of people in Scotland who are really great fiddle players and great guitar players as well. Mm -hmm. I think, though, at the time, because my aspirations were good into a symphony orchestra, that made a difference to it, and it, it, I think it had to. It had to be a choice, a clear choice at that point. Mm -hmm. Have you ever gone back to the guitar later on? No, well, not until lockdown. <laughs> well, <laughs> but funny, the funny thing is, um, I've always written from a compositional point of view. When I recorded the first trio um, album, closer to home, back in two thousand and four, but I, I look back and I remember. Um, at that time, particularly writing a lot of music and coming up with a lot of melodies that started the life in the guitar. The thing is, Ewan Drysdale, who plays guitar in, in the trio, he's had my classical guitar to play on since about that time, right? So I've not had my guitar in the house for 15 years. But what I've done at the moment is I've nicked my brother-in-law's guitar. So I left my own guitar with Ewan and I went through it with my brother-in-law's and when he wasn't looking at it, I just... <laughs> at the house and stuck it in the car. So I've, I've actually got back to, to playing a bit of guitar during lockdown. But, and I've, I've done a couple of wee recordings. Um, I've done a couple of recordings to the BBC. The only thing I'd say about it is I wouldn't have anywhere near this sort of level of confidence playing guitar again in public. I don't know if I ever will actually. Because the, the, the wee recordings I've done for, for um, Twitter or for um, YouTube or whatever, 
basically the fiddle's done in one take. The guitar, you're looking at six or seven takes. <laughs> now, that's fine if you're recording a two-minute thing for YouTube. If you're playing live, it's got to be right first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think at the moment I would have the confidence to play guitar mm-hmm. um, again in public. So mm-hmm. I'll be sticking with the fiddle in public. <laughs> but between you and me, I've been playing the guitar again a wee bit. Um, just more own amusement. Yeah, just branching out a wee bit. I suppose mm. as well, like not you saying you don't feel uh, that you have the confidence to play it in public is probably to do with the standard you would hold yourself to. You know, being a professional musician and playing the fiddle to the level that you. No, you're absolutely right. You know, you're absolutely right with that. I mean, because of my own high standards and the, the, the fiddle, I wouldn't play the guitar in public, I think, unless I felt I could get it to near that standard. Mm-hmm. And I don't see me doing that, actually. I really don't, I, you know, because by definition, I've been playing the fiddle non-stop for the last 25 years. Mm-hmm. I don't see me getting the guitar to that level. But I think I can get it back to a level where I can maybe do some recording or, or, or do um, something. Although, when it comes to that, again, it comes back to the collaboration aspect of it. I really love Ewan Drysdale's guitar playing and, you know, the character that he or, you know, another musician brings and he's a guitar player that can play very well in public, so his, his job's his job's very safe. <laughs> He'll be probably quite relieved. <laughs> well, I don't know, you need to ask him that. Uh... So when you were at college then and making that decision between being a violinist and being a guitar player, what kind of music was influencing you was it along the same lines as what had been important when you were younger or had it started to change a wee bit change quite a lot in college i was very into string quartets actually i would say predominantly i had i played my very good string quartet at college that's a whole other narrative um, the life of the string quartet is um, it's a fraught one you know and it ended, ended a very fraught way for the four of us but actually when i when i left the academy in glasgow um, we actually got accepted to go to London to the Royal Academy to study first study quartet. We were actually accepted as a first study string quartet. Okay. I think we were the first group ever to be to be accepted to that. So, but I was, I was so string quartet music, and in particular, I think I would point people towards the quartet. I mean, mentioned Beethoven violin concerto earlier. I think the Beethoven string quartets, um, in particular, the, see the recording. There's a brilliant library of Congress recording with the Budapest Quartet. And there's a series of live recordings that they made, the Library of Congress. Um, and they're absolutely fantastic. If everybody's got a chance to go and listen um, to, to those recordings. So uh, there's a number of string quartet recordings. We, we got coached by a couple of, a few really good groups in the Brodsky String Quartet. They've got a lot of coaching up in, in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. And they had a fantastic series of Shostakovich String Quartet recordings. And also, I would say, talking of Shostakovich, the Boron Quartet um, had a, a melty set of, of, of um, vinyl um, with a Boron string quartet. They play all the Shostakovich quartets. And I think I'm always fascinated with Shostakovich, with the quartet writing. He didn't actually start writing string quartets until after his Fifth Symphony was written. If you, if, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing to actually look at the, the chronology of... Uh, Shostakovich's writing because he sort of deemed the quartet writing such high esteem that he waited until after his fifth symphony before he turned his hand on it. And it's, it's, it's incredible when you look at the, the timings of different things. So when you, when you hear uh, Shostakovich's quartets, you're, you're listening to the most mature part of the composer. 
and I was I was always uh, fascinated uh, by that. And really, to be honest, still to this day, I mean, as, as great as just coach symphonies are, as amazing as Beethoven symphonies are, I still have a passion for the quartets over the symphonies, I would say, because of, of that time I spent with them, really, um, at, at yeah. music college. But I would point people to, to Borodin, string quartet, Plain Shostakovich, um, uh, the, the Budapest Quartet, the Library of Congress recordings of Beethoven. Mm-hmm. Um, or the, the Brodskys of, of, of Shostakovich, really fantastic. Mm-hmm. So after you left college then, we know that you achieved your aim of becoming part of the symphony orchestra, because that's part of your job now. What was that like when you first started as a young musician playing with an orchestra? Well, it was incredible. It was an incredible time for me, actually. I mean, I look back and it's so funny, 1997, I joined the orchestra. And I left college in London in 1995. So I had two years of, of freelancing, essentially. So I, I, I toured a lot of Scottish ensemble and I worked a lot of Scottish ballet and I did a lot of, sort of show work. My, my very first professional work when I returned to Scotland um, after leaving London, uh, the very first thing I, I did was in Phantom of the Opera um, in the pit in, okay. in Edinburgh. And it was, a, it was actually, I mean, musically, it was a, it was a terrifically sort of big learning curve. You know, come out of college and, and you, you know, you've, you've learned a fair amount on paper, but then all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're into the, the pit of a, of a, of a show with, with real kind of, you know, hard-bitten, experienced mm-hmm. professional that have been doing it for a lot of years. And it's a tough um, learning mm-hmm. curve. You're really sort of learning on the job. You know, you're, really, you're learning from people that are much more experienced than that. But when I joined the orchestra, just a fantastic time, you know. I mean, after all that sort of learning and studying and freelancing, I, I, I think just to feel finally sort of part of, a, of, a, of an ensemble full time, you know, like to, to day in, day out, to have that, to care about building friendships with people you were, you were working with. You weren't just sort of seeing them for a couple of weeks and then not seeing them again. The, the orchestra when I first joined was just an incredibly wonderful group of inspiring musician. At that point, and hopefully still is, I, 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 it's a great um, place for a young player to join because there's so, there's, you, there, there's genuine encouragement and, and support um, from the other players. And I think the great thing with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, uh, it's, it's a memory I'll always have. I remember my first day, my first week there, you know, so often in orchestras you hear about divisions, you know, like the, sort of, the strings will stick together and the brass will stick together and the, the wind will stick together. The great thing I remember joining the orchestra was, I remember Pete Oram, the principal from Bone, coming over. First coffee break, hello, welcome to the band. Eric Lee, second trumpet over, how you doing, man? Welcome to the band. Duncan Nairn came over, the clarinets, telling rubbish jokes right away. <laughs> Just a great bunch of people, great support. Of, and it was none of that sort of wearing the fiddles or wearing the brass. or wearing, It was just everybody together. And a lot of them, I think, were very, very formal, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And it's time passes quickly. I mean, that's 20, 23 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> but it, no, it was just just fantastic privilege to be offered the job, and and still to this day, it feels like a huge privilege. I mean, it's it's for me. You know, I think the orchestra's the, the sound of the orchestra. I think it's as good as it's ever been. It really is. It's it's, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I know when you're playing in the orchestra, although you enjoy it very much, you don't have a lot of creative control over what you're actually mm. playing because other people make those decisions. But you do have that control with the work that you do outside of the SSO, you know, organising yeah. your own gigs, recording your own albums and things. So is there anything particularly musically at the moment that 
influences what you do outside of your orchestra job? Well, it's, it's funny because you know when you send an email the other day and you had little um, um, pointers to, to you know to point towards sort of music at different times in life. Uh, I, I always find it quite interesting to, to just think instinctively about that actually, and you know rather than saying point of what what's what's uh, what's the music that's important. Yeah. And actually, orchestrally, the, the two composers that came to my mind orchestrally were Bartok and Sibelius. Bartok and Sibelius, Bartok Concerto for Orchestra. Mm -hmm. I still think it's one of the greatest pieces of music ever written. The orchestration, the inspiration behind it. But any of the, the Sibelius symphonies, and I would. I think um, instinctively, orchestrally, those are the two composers that came to my mind. And interestingly, there are two who are very influenced by both folk music and classical music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it's probably inevitable that those ones are, are the ones that kind of um, appeal to me. So I'm quite inspired by their sort of ability at keeping that folk music vibe, keeping the, the essence of it, but doing it in a very ordered way. Mm -hmm. Now there's no way I could could ever come you know come close to that in terms of the way that they do it, but I find them a, a great inspiration. Uh, and the, the other person that I've got to mention, I mentioned them a wee bit earlier, and I've got I always say this, Eddie McGuire for me of contemporary composers. I don't think there has been a greater Scottish composer for me than Eddie McGuire. I think his his ability, similar to Bartok and, and Sibelius, and to really really feel folk music as it is mm -hmm. and to be able to represent that orchestrally and put it into an orchestral environment with a, with a, a great understanding of orchestral instruments mm -hmm. I find Eddie a massive influence and, and just a great inspiration in the way that mm -hmm. he you know he, he does things and there's nothing um, that Eddie doesn't do well you know like no. from even when you see his work on the page it's yeah. so beautifully presented and he puts all this effort into the handwritten it's absolutely fantastic and and his knowledge of instruments that's what impresses me in the orchestra mm -hmm. his knowledge of instruments of ranges of of how instruments work it's really fantastic um, and if I've got any questions to ask, you know, I'm writing for the pipes or I'm, I'm writing for a, a certain coffee shop, so Eddie takes little bits of paper and he writes down little diagrams for me. <laughs> so that he's, 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 he continues to be a, a great tutor um, for, for stuff. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's never uh, not encouraging. It's nice to have someone approachable like that, I think. He's devoid, he's devoid of ego. Very rare. Mm -hmm. He's devoid of any ego at all. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's it's fantastic. Um, yeah, and yeah. the way he helps other people is fantastic. And and the last kind of category I asked you to think about, I guess, um, and I've spoken about with other people I've interviewed, is music that you'd you'd like to pass on, or something that you feel that is important that people hear that they might not think about. I think if you uh, of my own music, um, I, I would have said. If I had to point to one track, I would say uh, Vanishing Way of Life, which is from the Secrets from the Kitty album that I did with um, Ian and Ewan uh, back in 2012, that album came out. Um, mm -hmm. But Vanishing Way of Life was was inspired, really, some of the music from, our, uh, we did a, a, an album before that, a few years before that, called Fool for a Time, which actually, looking back on it, is really a concept album, actually. I mean, it's in as much as the, the whole album was all about um, sort of loss. Ewan Drysdale's father had died um, shortly before we recorded that. And I, my aunt, uh, Jean, uh, my mum's sister-in-law, um, 
had passed away a few months earlier, and, and they were that was very influential in that record. But the whole kind of concept of a, a time for everything, and my own Christian faith has been very important to me throughout my adult life. And there's, there's quite a lot of kind of references subtly to to that in, in that album. It's all kind of about hope, you know, hope and despair and, and all that kind of thing. So, but that that record to go back to the point, BBC Alba used it for a documentary and it was all about a lady called um, Kitty Ann who actually died last year aged 100 oh wow and she was going back to a, a, an island Island Nunroan Island of Seals and it's where she'd grown up there's a lovely line in the film and she says oh this is a vanished way of life this doesn't exist anymore and I thought it's just a beautiful line that this is a, a you know vanished way of life so I wrote this wee tune called The Vanishing Way of Life and the trio recorded it for Secrets from the Kitty and it's a beautiful piano solo to start the album you and Drysdale does a fantastic um, piano solo, and Ian Crawford does all these sort of wonderful um, sort of noises in the, in the dog bass. Ian will be delighted I've described his playing as noises on the double bass. I was just thinking that. <laughs> Beautiful noises. Sorry, he says worse to me, don't worry. Um, but the two of them are just magic in that, in that track. And, um, so I'd, I'd probably point to that if, in reference to my own um, stuff. I think also what's very special for me personally was uh, the Alone With History album that I did with Colin Stephen and Crafty Kirk. Because on that album, it's all Neil Gow's music and mm-hmm. James Scott Skinner and William Marshall. And I think you want to really sort of promote that old Scottish music, classic Scottish film music. I think if I was to leave people with anything at the end of this would be that, you know, please keep listening to James Scott Skinner William Marshall, Neil Gow. Neil Gow is the, the sort of godfather of the of the Scottish fiddle. And my, my friend Pete Clark, who I mentioned earlier, um, who's responsible for the Neil Gow Festival up Perthshire, he, he's a fantastic exponent of, of Neil Gow's music. So I would encourage you um, people to go on and, and kind of keep supporting the Scottish fiddle art. You know, it's a, there's a great mm-hmm. art to it. And um, people like um, Pete and, and, and Ali Bain and Alistair Fraser and all these people, they've all done great recordings of a lot of these tunes. So um, I would I would encourage I would encourage um, maybe any young players that are listening to, to keep listening to the masters, you know. Um, anything by them. Yeah. And just returning back for a second to the albums of your own that you mentioned and you were speaking about the collaboration that you do with the other musicians. What's the writing process on those kind of things? Like do you come up with something and then go into a recording studio with the other musicians or do you work on something together or is there a certain amount of improvisation or anything going on there? Yeah, the, the honest answer to that is that every track is different and every track has been different. Mm-hmm. With, with quite a few of them, I'll, I'll maybe compose a melody or a melody in my mind or a sketch for a melody. Because I think with melodies that they don't always arrive complete, you know, they're like you've got sort of... Um, a shape, you know, some kind of shape of a melody, the bare bones of it, but it starts to sort of take shape. So with some of them, what I would do is, actually the trio very often when I think back to the way we used to work in the records, I'd maybe um, work with one of the two guys first of all, but it really varied a lot from, from um, track to track. Some of the tracks, um, there's one or two of the tracks where you uh, and me sort of jointly uh, wrote together where it kind of started with his Harmonic. There's a there's a track on um, Full for a Time album called Farewell But Not Goodbye. It's actually directly related. It's, it's dedicated to my Jean, who I mentioned earlier. Farewell But Not Goodbye was something that the, the minister said at the funeral, but it stuck in my mind. 
and um, you and uh, came up with some beautiful uh, piano chords. And the melody actually came after the Bune's piano harmony stuff. Mm-hmm. So that was an example of something kind of working in a different way, different way around. Mm-hmm. More recently, I've actually started writing down music a lot more with a bigger group and for just for um, ease of, of working, hopefully no less creatively, but maybe in a more cohesive way, quicker. So with the trio, we never, ever wrote anything down. Um, it was a case of the three, we just remember it. And, and one thing I would say about that is, I mean, both of them were equally responsible. You know, if you ask somebody to come in and do one note or tambourine, it, you must think it valuable enough to have that tambourine note in there. Therefore, they are incredibly valuable to the recording. Mm-hmm. So if you decide to do an album and involve other people on it, you have to, have to acknowledge that they are of you know, equal value. Otherwise, why are you asking them to come mm-hmm. and do it? I love the line Eric Clapton uses, because we've not had a chance to chat about the, the rock and blues, or listen to all that stuff as well, but when he joined John Mayo's Blues Breakers Band, and he summed it up brilliantly. He said, John Mayo invited people to come into his band for what they could bring to the band. And I think, that is a, I think that's a brilliant yeah. way of approaching collaboration. Um, the other line, sorry, that, that, that sticks in my mind on that subject is what Nathan Nolstein, the fiddle player, said about that. He, he wrote a brilliant book called From Russia to the West. And he had, he had the, the privilege of working with a lot of these great 20th century composers, Stravinsky and Prokofiev and all these people. But he got into arguments a lot when he was doing premieres on the violin with a lot of these pieces. And the reason he got into arguments with them is he said, because composers don't necessarily know their music better than other people. And it's always struck with me. And I think that's a very important thing to remember as a composer as well. And I found this very often with, with both Ian and Ewan or Alice Allen or whoever I'm working with. Very often they've got a better direction that they want to take the music in than what you've got your, yourself. They hear something in it that's different from what you perceive it as. Mm-hmm. But I think that, I think that's very important. Yeah, yeah, I was interested to hear your perspective on that, especially because you've talked already about kind of two different traditions that in, inform your playing. You know, classical yeah. playing and folk music playing are very different in that respect and you kind of highlighted a lot of them there in terms of the way music is created in terms of how it's played and also how it's recorded you know because classical music is almost always notated folk music is seldom notated and so it's kind of you know you're falling in between those two and I suppose because you've got such a good working grasp of both of those areas that it's interesting just to find out how they meld well when you're working creatively. Yeah, they're all different. Every piece is different. I think one thing with, with traditional music to say is that notation has actually historically been incredibly important to traditional music. I mean, Neil Gow, for example, um, a lot of his tunes and his melodies have only survived because of the work of Nathaniel and actually in the publishing industry. Mm-hmm. So actually, the actual you know writing down of the music in some way was um, really important and, and valuable in terms of the preservation of the music. Now, obviously, things are different nowadays because of the recording industry. We don't have records of Neil Gow playing the fiddle. So obviously, the only way of that passing down through the centuries in the first instance was notation. Mm-hmm. One thing I've found really interesting with the recording process is it's given me an insight into how tunes get changed over the years, almost immediately after they're conceived, because I've found even with my own melodies, I've say I've written them down, mm-hmm. I've gone into the studio to record them, left a bit of paper at home with the music written down, recorded it, gone back, 
listen to it and realise I'm actually playing different notes mm. than what I wrote down. So that's not even got as far as another player playing yeah. the tunes. So that's one thing I love about the traditional music world. I love the fact that it's not just the harmony and the accompaniment that can change. I love the fact that the melodies themselves are open to mm-hmm. evolving mm-hmm. and people doing slightly different um, things, you know, with the melodies in terms of where they want to take mm-hmm. them. Yes, yeah, it's kind of fascinating process. Yeah, it is. and I was going to mention as well that you've worked with the Grit Orchestra since it was created yeah. and there must be a lot of those things feeding into that environment as well because you're bringing together all these players from such widely different traditions. Yeah. That's an incredible group of players. I mean, they, they, there's, there's so, so many of these subjects we're talking about, I'd love to talk in more length about. Mm. I mean, they, I mean Mar- Martin Bennett, I was at college with Martin. Martin was the year above me at college. He would, I'm 47, Martin uh, would have been 48, I think, this year. Um, obviously died tragically, young, 33. And uh, But Martin was, um, goodness, that's a whole other programme. I don't I, I don't know where to start. He was a great example of somebody at college with a really eclectic taste. I sat next to him in rep orchestra at college. And he's somebody, you know, a lot of people, people think I'm joking when I say this. I didn't know when we were at college, I didn't know that he played the pipes. I honestly didn't know that. He never mentioned it. Um, he was a fantastic classical fiddle player. I mean, really virtuosic player. I used to sit with Martin in uh, the, the, the canteen, you know, having a cup of coffee. And I was playing in a Kelly band every weekend, all the way through college. He was out busking with his pipes. And we didn't, I honestly didn't have a single conversation with him really about traditional music. At that time, people just kind of did traditional music on the quiet. You know, it was like, they didn't have the credibility and the focus and the the celebration that it's, it's got now, you know, so, but Martin, what a, what a character, and, and yeah, Greg's done a brilliant job, you know, doing all that arranging, and, I mean, that's a whole other programme, you know, <laughs> but what Greg did with that, that's brilliant, really brilliant. So, I mean, I suppose that's a good place to leave it, um, thank you very much for taking it. It's been great chatting, like, I've got to, like I say, my wife's out um, walking in all this rain, you know, I'm sitting here yabbering about music, <laughs> drinking coffee and, and just reminiscing about the good old days so I really appreciate it. also I should just say uh, um, before we finish massive thanks to the Scottish Music Centre because um, I'm sure all the other members of the centre will agree that during these really really tricky times actually the centre has been a continual support on social media and just you know doing stuff like this you know helping the musicians so I, I want to say on behalf of myself and also I'm sure on behalf of everybody, all the other musicians involved in the, the Scottish Music Centre, we're really indebted to you for, for keeping going and working through oh, all this. You're so welcome. It's it's lovely to hear that you appreciate it, but um, we're just so keen to try to find ways that we can help. Like you say, it's been extremely challenging for everybody and even if we can do small things here and there, we're... Yeah really keen to help out and it's, it's very much appreciated thanks Laura. no problem at all you're so welcome and thanks very much for chatting to me thanks for listening to this episode of amplified with alistair savage you can find out more about alistair and his work and listen to and buy some of his music at his website alistairsavage.co.uk and one final thing to mention is that the music you can hear playing in the background is by richard greer 